Now we're in. Right. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Big Issues podcast. I am Dowd Khan. And there will be no James Roxburgh this week, for he has exams. So it is the it is the A-level season. So let us wish him uh, jolly good luck for his exams and ensure he does well, for he is a good chap and we all adore him. Uh, so you're stuck with me this week on Big Issues Podcast. Now, anyone who's clicked on this episode will know what we're going to talk about this week. Uh, right now, I haven't a clue. So I'm going to ponder... All right, let's do 1970 to 1979 British politics. Let's just do it. I was very tempted, dear listeners, to do an episode on reforming the tax code or talking about Bertie Ahern. Uh, but last week's Irish episode wasn't a success in publicity. Um, but nevertheless, we will now do a straight 90-minute episode talking about 1970 to 1979. I'm going to use the questions as prompts, and I'm just going to do a one and a half hour, well, lecture. Yes, I'm going to have to talk to this machine for an hour and a half, which is tedious, but I'm hope. Let's, let's, let's just carry on before I change my mind. So, let's put into context where we were just three weeks ago before we went to the episode on Brian Cowan as Taoiseach. Uh, we're not doing... T-shirt or Irish politics this week. This week's just British politics. So we got to the 1970 general election where Ted Heath had won a 30 seat overall majority, defined the odds, defined the campaign. You know, Labour spent most of the campaign famously on the Friday before polling day. Labour were 14 points ahead of in the polls on Friday before polling day. And Heath won by three points. I think it was 45, 46. 46% of 43%, 330 seats to 288 seats. Heath comes into power and is immediately, within five weeks of coming to power, had, had a huge blow. And that blow was the death of Ian McLeod. Now, Ian McLeod was the Chancellor of the Exchequer under Heath. He was the Shadow Chancellor when Heath was the leader of the opposition. He was seen by many Conservatives as one of the most sensible, forward-thinking people on Earth. I personally think Ian McLeod is a great intellectual talent, very similar to uh, R.A. Butler. I'm a very big fan of R.A. Butler, but him and McLeod were, were two people who should have become prime minister, would have made fantastic prime ministers of this country. Now, obviously, McLeod uh, died and they appointed Mr. Anthony Barber, who cut taxes in his first budget from 90 to 75%. Uh, and brought a 15% surcharge on the unearned income to pay for the huge tax cuts. And actually, for the first two years of the Heath government, the economic policy was monetarist. It was tax cuts, it was lowering the rate of inflation, it was trade union reform, it was you know, not really privatisation per se, but you know some mild economic liberalisations. Remember, Heath, during the Macmillan government, did the uh, infamous what's known as resale price maintenance. And you and I would know that as ending of government price controls, which is an interesting novel concept. So McLeod dies, and then, of course, the Industrial Relations Act comes in. Now, this was basically mild trade union regulations. So, for example, the idea of a 28-day cooling-off period after a strike, so that you couldn't have a strike and then three days later go on for another strike. The idea that all members uh, of trade unions should join up on a national board the idea that 
you know, some basic standardized controls. But the key thing about the industrial relations act was it recognized every worker has the right to join a trade union. But the controls that were placed on the unions, which, by the way, if they were the only controls the unions face nowadays, you would see that as an extremely left wing pro trade union bill. But times have changed, regrettably. The unions, but the industrial relations that passed and the Labour Party then swiftly uh, repealed that with the Trade Union and Labour Act of 1974. So, yeah, like I pointed out, so they, they cut the top rate of tax from 90 to 75 percentage points. Uh, the and they put a surcharge. Was that a wise idea? Answer: Of course it was. Nobody in a rich country should pay 90, a 90% top rate of tax. I've said in the podcast, and people who know me know, that I personally think no tax rate should ever be above 40%. I think the lower you can bring the rates down whilst, as per se, broadening the base, so more people are paying their taxes, which I think is key, and there's certainly not these deductions and these credits and these loopholes that minimises your tax liability, but I think the lower rate is certainly a desired outcome. Uh, if you look at the 1986 tax reform in America, that is the beacon example of what you should do, where Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill and James Baker and Danny Rosenkowski lowered the, the average basic rate from 22 to 15 and lowered the top marginal rate from 50 to 28. But they closed the deductions, the credits and the loopholes were all taken out. And what happened? Revenue went up for the government, not downwards. In fact, revenue doubled under the Reagan years. Doubled. So why did the economic policy under Mr Heath change? Well, it was quite simple. Unemployment reached a million. Now, when unemployment reached a million in March 1972, uh, the House of Commons had to be suspended. It had to be suspended because when the Prime Minister got to his feet answering the first question, the Labour Party, quite rightly, were barricading Heath out, Heath out, Heath out. One great Labour MP said, tell him to get back on his boat. Uh, Reference that Edward Heath was an ocean-going sailor who uh, sailed a ship called the Morning Cloud that won the Sydney Hobart Yacht, Hobart Yacht Race in 1969. Uh, so yes, the House of Commons went absolutely furious with rage. Now unemployment at one and a quarter million today is held as some heroic achievement and what it is is nothing short of a disgrace to the human race unemployment is the greatest moral tragedy this country faces and anyone that says it's not a big deal well clearly you don't understand what it's like not to have a job having a job the right to self-sufficiency is key to the economic society we should all believe in where everyone has the right to pay their own way not be on handouts it's key unless they are unless they need it because they're disabled elderly young or poor then of course look after them but the right to a job is key. If you have a right to a well-paid, trade-unionised job, you can then have a path to being self-sufficient, which I think is the key to living a decent life with self-sufficiency. But unemployment reached a million, and he saw that personally as a huge blunder. Because, remember, he grew up in the 30s. In the 30s, unemployment was 3 million. Now, in the 50s, after the war... It was deemed by Labour chancellors and Tory chancellors, from Cripps to Gateskill to Butler to Macmillan to Dalton to Maudling to Callaghan to, to Jenkins, that unemployment, keeping that low and going downwards, is the key number one economic priority for the government. Now, 
There are some others who say, no, 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 it's holding down inflation. And I would agree, holding down inflation is central. But what does 2015 show us? 2015 shows us you can have inflation at zero and unemployment still coming downwards every quarter of the year. So uh, the, the desire for uh, no inflation and for full employment are not a contradictory and oxymoronic desire. They are perfectly li linked together. In my view, both of them should be done. How do you do that? Well, remember this about unemployment. If you create jobs, you take people off of the welfare state and into work. So you're not going to kick people off benefits because they're leaving benefits to go to work. When they go into work, they are paying taxes. So what you get is a rise in revenue and a lowering of the cost. And if you get that, that means your deficit comes downwards. And remember, how does inflation come about? Inflation comes about because when the governments can't raise taxes or borrow any more money, they simply print to fill the gaps. So if you reduce your borrowing requirements by boosting revenue and, yes, lowering spending where required, you will then see the deficit going to surplus over five years and inflation will come down and stay down and you will create an economic culture of full employment because industry will know that in a society of low taxes and enterprising economy, it would be a good idea to create jobs. Um, but yes, so Heath grew up in this society. You see, James is not here to restrain me this week, so I literally can just say what I want. Uh, Heath grew up in, a, in a, an economic philosophy that said unemployment is such a moral disgrace, which it is, that you must prevent it. And they did. Famously with upper class shipbuilders, then with reinflating the economy to invest in public in public industry in nationalized industries to hold down unemployment. And they did. And they did. So let's be fair to them, they did. Now, what's fun not funny, but quite ironic, is that the weak unemployment went to a million led to two weeks of the government getting Put this way, the worst stream of events you could dream of. So unemployment goes to a million, which is already disgraceful. Then Bloody Sunday happens, where basically, um, how does one say this without with being sensitive? Uh, the British troops, British troops knowingly dis discharged weapons on citizens in Northern Ireland that killed innocent people. That was Bloody Sunday. I mean, that, yeah. It's part of the whole Northern Irish, the whole Northern Irish conflict. We could do it on, on the whole Northern Irish conflict, but it's a very, very de delicate, delicate issue, very delicate. But it was deemed to be a disgraceful matter, Bloody Sunday. Um, the streets of London, Derry, where innocent people were killed, and then of course comes uh, the nineteen twenty six national, the nineteen seventy two national miners strike, the first ever national miners strike since nineteen twenty six. So in two weeks, Heath had unemployment at a million, a controversy in Northern Ireland that was horrendous, and a national miners' strike. Not going well, is it, Heath? Not going well, sunshine. But, 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 what is Edward Heath's golden achievement? Britain joining the European Economic Community. Now, Heath was an ardent European. Edward Heath, now King Clark is recognised by many as the most pro-European politician in Britain, okay? 
Edward Heath would make Kevin Clark sound like a Eurosceptic. That's how pro-European Heath was. Heath passionately believed in a European, in a European Union, a European single currency, a Europe without borders, without trade controls, basically a united Europe. That was Heath's core vision of Europe. Now, it's not a vision I share. I don't believe in the united Europe. I don't think it should be a country called Europe. But, but, there is, <clears throat> there is great merit. There is, however, great merit to the notion of a single market, of a customs union. The idea that British people should be able to trade freely with Europe, live freely with our fellow Europeans, see ourselves as proud Europeans, proud British people, and proud Europeans. We must be both. We must be both. And Heath was very, very Europhilic. Very Europhilic. I mean, so Charles de Gaulle had rejected Macmillan joining the EEC. He rejected Harold, he rejected Harold Wilson's attempt, attempts at joining the EEC. And uh, de Gaulle died in 71, uh, President of France. Of France. So uh, Georges Pompidou took over. And Pompidou was inherently more pro-British than de Gaulle. And uh, the first time you had... It, 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 uh, the stars aligned, basically. You had a prime minister who was so profoundly pro-European that he made Ken Clark lucky you're a skeptic. And Georges Pompidou, who was uh, Anglophile more than de Gaulle. So they agree, and it led to that infamous, infamous press conference where with Georges Pompidou standing next to Heath and saying, uh, there are those, of course, who believe that, uh, that Britain has no place in a modern Europe, but here you have two leaders who totally believe the contrary. And um, that was bold. Now, Heath... Because the strength of his Europeanism ensured that really over the course of 18 months, we went from charming George Pompidou to getting Jeffrey Rippon to negotiate in the Europe, signing the Treaty of Rome. And it, it was a remarkable achievement. But the question is, though, how did we do that? The question what I'm trying to say is, how did Parliament agree to that? Well... Heath had a majority of 30. It was 330 Tory MPs, 288 Labour MPs, six Liberals, six others. Which breeds the obvious question, there could not have just been... All right, let's check that, because those figures are correct. But the question... What, how many Irish seats were there? Jesus Christ. I'll just put 1970 in. The first thing was the United States, the 1970 New York Senate seat election. Jesus Christ. Right. UK general election. Heath. Right. Let's look at the results. So, how many seats did the Irish get? Did the Irish only have four seats? No way. Were those seats even recognised in the House? Jesus Christ, it actually weren't. They didn't, they didn't really. They got a few, three seats. My good God. So, so yeah, that's what happened. And so what happened was this. So you had 34. So basically, let me explain to you. Hugh Rossi, 
who was a whip in the Tory office, with Francis Pym, who was the chief whip. And they had a list. They had people in Blue Market who were called the Robust, and these were Tory MPs who were loyal to the government. And you had brown people in the Brown Mark who were just labelled as the shits. And these people were disloyal, they weren't going to vote with the European line, and they were basically just a bunch of shits. Uh, I like this system a lot. The robust and the shits. And in the middle, you're doing yellow mark of people who could be won over. Who could be won over. Now, there were Tory MPs like Enoch Powell who didn't live in the real world. Right? Enoch believed in Imperial Britain where we had an empire and we had a so uh, empire was so big that the sun never sets because God would never trust the British in the dark. Uh, that's just a joke of mine. Actually, it's a joke for someone else, but I like that joke. God would the sun the sun never set because God would never trust the British in the dark. Um, the empire was there, and they talked of parliamentary sovereignty in these debates. Now, when the Eurosceptics talk about parliamentary sovereignty, I would like to ask this question to them. What exactly do you object? Which powers have we given away to the European Union that you find of contempt? Because when you ask that, those Eurocitizens, the question that it answers is often very much this. It's workers' rights, economic rights, the social welfare laws. That's what they are. These people are right-wing charlatans. So Powell believed in national sovereignty. Now, how was it with about 50 Tory MP rebels did Edward Heath win a majority of 100 in the House of Commons? Roy, step in, Roy Jenkins. Now, Roy Jenkins was shadow chancellor under the Howard Wilson leadership. He was chancellor of the Exchequer under the Wilson's prime minister, the Michelle chancellor. Now, Jenkins was such an was basically as pro-European as Ted Heath. That's the premise of it. He was as pro-European as Edward Heath. Now, right. So Jenkins wanted to join, and there were people in the Labour Party at the time. You know, Shirley Williams, Roy Pattersley, uh, David Owen. I mean, shall I shall I do the names? Yeah, okay. Right, SDP in 1981, Shirley Williams, Roy, uh, Roy Jenkins, David Owen, and Bill Rogers joined. <laughs> so what did the left call them? Uh, you had Dr. Death, that was David Owen. Uh, Why are the Wadicals? That's because Roy Jenkins could never pronounce the letter R. Uh, Shirley Poppins, after Mary Poppins, turned for that Shirley Williams. And when in the 1992 election, when Paddy Ashdown wanted to do a deal with the Liberal Democrats, they called him Paddy Backdown. Uh, that was the North. That was the Northern Left Wing Labour Party's jokes of the right of the party. I mean, okay, now I'm really veering off left field, but I'm going to do it anyways because I have total control of the mic today. Is that in 1975 when the Centre for Policy Studies was founded as a right wing think tank to rival the CPS? That's no. <laughs> Fuck off. The CPS was founded in 1975, a right-wing think tank to rival the CRD, the Conservative Research Department. And the CPS had Keith Joseph, John Hoskins, Norman Strauss, 
Uh, who else was it? Just was it those three? I think it was because <laughs> Keith Joseph was called the Mad Monk. John Hoskins was called Ratty from Wind of the Willows, and Norman Strauss was called Toad. Uh, can't think of why. Um, so the nicknames, uh, culture. I thought I'd just give a little, I don't know, a nicknaming there. But yeah, those are three people in CPS. Keith Joseph, who later became Margaret Thatcher's trade and industry secretary and minister of secretary of education, and John Hoskins and Norman Strauss became Margaret Thatcher's uh, head of number 10 policy. But back to, back to Jenkins. So yeah, Roy Jenkins got David Owen and Roy of the uh, Roy of the <laughs> Shirley Williams and all the left, the right of the Labour Party, all sixty-seven of the right of the Labour Party, to go march to the government lobbies and back the EEC. Now, was it right? Of course it was. That was a bipartisan achievement that got Britain into Europe. Was it wrong in a way? Yes. Here's why. Here's why. Edward Heath would have had to resign as Prime Minister if they lost the vote. In the same way Tony Blair threatened to resign and would have resigned on the top-up fees vote in 2004, where we, we put in the 2001 manifesto, we will not increase tuition fees, we will not introduce top-up fees and have legislation to prevent them, and then brought in top-up fees with no legislation to prevent them. Uh, fortunately, 79 Labour MPs... No, sorry. No, it wasn't 99. Sorry, I, that's in the statement. It was 93 Labour MPs had the courage of their convictions to stand up against that stupid decision. Uh, activists, may I add, like Mr Wes Streeting, uh, who, when he was president of the NUS, was very much against tuition fees. He was right then. He was right then. I suspect he's still right now. Um, but yeah, so like Tony Blair threatened to resign tuition fees, Edward Heath would have resigned to join the EEC. And knowing there's about 50 Tory MPs who would never vote to join the EEC, they could have brought it down. However, they could have brought it down, but however, the to- Labour Party was just as divided on the Europe question as the Tory party. You know, the Labour Party was split between the Benites and the Jenkinsites in the same way the Tories were with the Heathites and the Powerites. So great divides. But yes, it carried a majority of 102. Now, the second time they had to do the voting, you have to remember that the, the Labour Party thought it would be a thousand clauses, the European Accession Bill, a thousand clauses. Michael Foote famously said the 1972 Labour Conference, of course we can stop it. The mountain of legislation that is required to give people what they need, the right to choose in regards to a referendum. Because Heath had famously said in 1969 or 70, nobody could ever join without the full-hearted consent of the British people. (laughs) Which most people thought meant referenda. Meant referenda, but he said no. And actually, further on our incidentally points, Sir James Goldsmith, who later founded the Referendum Party and was a massive Eurosceptic, he, he, in 1971, when the Tory party had £3 million worth of debt to its name and was virtually bankrupt as a party, got leaders of British industry to rally around and give the Tory party lots and lots of cash to resolve the debt crisis. 
and he was a Eurosceptic bailing out a Eurosceptic, a Europhilic Conservative Party. Now, second time round, with a 14 clause bill, it passed because even though all the Tory Eurosceptics wouldn't vote for the bill, Francis Pym got 21 Labour MPs on not understanding that he wasn't asking for anything excessive, he was just asking to stick to their principles and vote with the government. I mean, that is bold. That is bold. But it worked. It worked. Now, let's look to the end of the Heath years and talk about the big death nail, which was the three-day week. Now, how did the three-day week come about? So, you had a report being commissioned into the Heath government's minor strikes policy, which was the idea of the miners wanting a 35% pay increase. They wanted this pay increase because the price of oil had quadrupled because of the Yom Kippur War, and because of the Six-Day War, same company as before, the OPEC countries decided to quadruple the oil prices and cut the half of the rate of production, causing an energy crisis. Now, the miners in 73 still produced half of our electricity, half. And there was great sympathy for miners because, you know, nobody in their right mind would want to go down the pit and look for coal. It's a very indignified job. And the miners funded, we'll talk about this vaguely, but the miners funded the communities, you know, football teams and schools being funded by local mines. So they do a national strike and it's seen as fair by a lot of the public. He, knowing... Heath, knowing the miners are sympathetic to the public sympathy for the miners, decides to announce a three day week where he says we're going to cut, we're going to cut back all electricity through three days a week. Uh, In terms of comfort, we will have the hardest Christmas snow since the war. And that was his idea. The hardest Christmas since the war, uh, in terms of cutting back all electricity and shutting off all broadcasts at 10 p.m., etc. Now, the miners on January the 7th told, told their leader, John, Joe Gormley, was actually willing to cut a deal with Heath and you know pay miners for washing time, i.e., for time anti- above hours they were washing the coals. And how Wilson sabotaged this deal, saying only a Labour government could actually do a proper deal with the miners, and it was fair. And then came a ballot, and one morning, Robin, Robin Butler, who was Heat PPS and later Cabinet Secretary under Tony Blair, uh, came up to Heath with the result. The miners have rejected it three to one. And Heath said, what do I do now? And uh, Sir Robin Butler said, there's only one thing you can do, Prime Minister, and see him have a general election. So they go to the country, and it's called the Who Governs election in 1974. Heath basically, very less trust in this respect. You know, we back the, the, stri- the strivers, they back the strikers. We back the strivers, they back the strikers. Says Liz Trust, the woman who crashed the economy, put a thirty billion pound hole in our economy, and on a right wing economic theory that was complete and utter bullshit. Um, she was like striver, wasn't she? More like a fucking mental nutcase. But 
you know, Liz Tr- so, sorry, so Keith runs on that idea of uh, it's, it's time to tell the people, the militants and those people who are clogging up our way of life, we've had enough. That was his notion. Um, unions versus the people election. And Wilson gave a rally where he said, this man has got the country's priorities all wrong. Yeah. Let oh let Mr. Heath just take responsibility. Let him take responsibility once for his actions, rather than please, sir, it wasn't me. Let's hear his ideas on miners and the coal union, and not all this constant drivel against the British people. Uh, Heath, so Wilson ran a campaign where he thought he was going to lose the election. Now. You know, you had Labour's central focus on one on one thing. It was focused on reducing prices and ending strikes. Now the Tories wanted to just end the strikes. That was their whole pitch. It was vote Tory and we'll end your strikes. Now, if they'd won a majority, they probably could have. Because they could have forced the on, on the unions. Now, Wilson famously went back after he became Prime Minister with a majority of minus 33 and gave them the 35 to the pay rise they wanted for. Now, did the Liberals run a good campaign? The answer to that question is, of course they did. The Liberal Party went from having 6 to 14 seats and from about, I think it was about 8 or 9% of the vote to 18% of the vote. It was a remarkable comeback. You know, Jeremy Thorpe, to his, to his credit, ran actually quite an amazing campaign in, in February 74. I mean, famously, Jeremy Thorpe might know him from the f- film A Very British Scandal, who was arrested and tried for murder, and he didn't commit it. And when he lost his seat in North Devon in 1979, a reporter said, Mr Thorpe, do you believe your impending trial at the Old Bailey has caused you this defeat? And Jeremy Thorpe said, well, put it this way, it didn't do any good. <laughs> Which I find very, very funny. Um, let's look at that election result. So it was Labour 301, so up 13. Tories 297, that's down 33. Liberals 14. So it was Labour, I think it was this. I stand corrected though. I think it was Tories 37.8, Labour 37.2, Liberals 18.7 percentage percent of the vote. Now, Heath wanted either two things. Heath wanted either a national unity government with the Labour Party or a deal with the Liberals. Now, he wasn't going to get a national, a national unity government with the Labour Party because the year before the election, Howard Wilson had said, as long as I'm leader of this party, the Labour Party will not go into any coalition, anyone else, Liberal or otherwise, or any party. There'll be no pact, no deal, no coalition, no understanding, no backroom talks. We will go it alone. Uh, as long as I remain there, it's good, isn't it? Uh, so, yeah, that's happening. And as for the Liberals, well, you know, 14 plus 297 does not equal to 318. So that was equally unviable. Wilson does a minority for uh, seven months from March to October. And what does he do? We passed the Trade Union and Labour and Relations Act, which repeals the 1971 Industrial Relations Act. We re- we passed the Prices Act, 
which advanced the food subsidies, cuts of the pay boards, and restricts the freq- uh, the upward frequent implementation of price increases. In the National Assurance Act 1974, we fulfilled the manifesto pledge to raise pensions £10, a, a single person £18 a couple. The Finance Act gave t- security of 10 years people, and the wealth and the rent set. Well, the, the Finance Act gave more security in tackling draft dodges, and the, the Rent Act gave security attendance to those people, and we doubled the region's employment allowance, which Labour brought in in 1967, and the Tories tried to scrap. Well, that is a breathtaking list. So, my breath, I don't know how you quite felt about it. Those are the words of Howard Wilson. Well, I didn't do it in his accent, did I? Let me do it in his accent, thank you, good listeners. Which is, we passed the Trade Union and Labour Relations Act, which revealed the 1971 Industrial Relations Act. Uh, it preserved the union rights and un- existing unfair immunity and, and abolishing unfair immunities. And in the National Insurance Act 1970, we passed the Prices Act, which repealed this, which repealed the sticky labels racket and brought rid of the prices board and the pay beds and increased food subsidies and then also increased the up, upward implementation of restricted the upward implementation of price increases. In the National Insurance Act 1974, we fulfilled the manifesto pledge to raise pensions £10 a single person, £18 a couple. The finance, the finance Act gave more house tackle wealth tax, the wealth tax dodgers, and the Security Act gave rent of 10 years to those people in furnished accommodation. Well, that is a breathtaking list. Took my breath away. I felt about it. Took my breath away again. Bloody hell. But that was what we did. That is a breathtaking list of achievements. The Finance Act, the Rent Act, the Trade Union Labour Relations Act, the Prices Act, you know, brilliant, with a majority of minus 33, may I add. So Wilson goes to the country, uh, pays the miners off, may I add, he pays the miners off, and because how Wilson famously said, what the British people want is a bit of peace and quiet. And in the March 74 budget, Dennis Healy partially reverses the the tax cut Anthony Barber gave, so he goes from seventy five up to eighty three percent, up to eighty three percent, which is too high, much too high. And the October election happened because Labour had a majority of minus thirty three, thirty what well, seventeen seats short of the overall majority, and needed a power, so they run the campaign, and Labour campaign on those achievements, the Tories campaign on putting Britain first, whatever the fuck that meant. That was definitely not dog whistling to some deeply unpleasant people in society. And the late and the Liberals campaigned on a three-party politics. Now, the thing about this is that Labour campaigned on its achievements and commitments to schools and hospitals and price and cutting price increases and holding down the rates of inflation. Heath campaigned on abolishing the rates and cutting making it easy, easy for people to buy the homes. And Liberals basically you know, will be a brains to Labour and a heart to the Tories style campaign. Now what happened? Labour won a majority. They won 319 seats, which is not very good. The Tories won three, 277 seats, Liberals 14. So Labour went to 37, 39% of the vote, Tories 35% of the vote, and Liberals think about 15, 14% of the vote. No, 17, 17% of the vote. Um, yeah, so he was done. After losing three of his four general elections, uh, the Tory party wanted a new leader. Now, they couldn't go for Sir Keith Joseph, because even though Sir Keith Joseph was the natural banner of the right, famously, I always knew Sir Keith Joseph was the man 
who went to an Oxford Labour Club at age at whilst he was the Secretary of State for Health, and said, uh, "Who in the last one hundred years has changed the world fundamentally?" Some of you may say for good. I think for evil. No, is it? I I know. Some of you may say for good. I disagree. It was Karl Marx. It was Karl Marx. And how did he have the time to do his work? It was because he had the patronage of the Engel family. Oh, I mean, so that was Keith Jones' thesis to a bunch of young Oxford students, is that you may be Marxist, but even Marxist was a right-winger in the way he funded his means. I mean, which is quite funny. Uh, Keith Joseph. Uh, what else did Keith? I mean... Um... He was a Keynesian until 1974, until he, he became a converted right-winger. And he changed his mind, uh, but he gave, like Enoch Powell, a stupid speech in Birmingham, where he basically gave a speech of our human stock is threatened, and we more or less called for the sterilisation of poor people. Which is an idea so fucking disgusting, so putrescent, so revoltingly, disgustingly shit, that even the Tory party said it's a bad idea to nominate this man. I mean, Ken Clark famously said, um, Keith Joseph is one of the nicest people in politics, but so you, Keith Joseph is one of the nicest people in politics, but he was could be a hopeless prime minister, couldn't run a Welk store, uh, Ken Clark, the Welk store analogy, and he couldn't. So, who were the right to nominate? But Joseph had been the bannerman, leader of the banner, had been the holder of the banner. Oh, uh, Airy Neve, a very slimy, mysterious figure, decides to make uh, Margaret Thatcher the leader by campaigning for her. Famously, him and Tebbit, Norman Tebbit meets up and he goes, uh, Norman, have you thought about Thatcher? Mm-hmm. And it's for leader, and he goes, yes, it's for leader, yes. I mean, if any of you watched this play, uh, the play This House, Rick Lake, which is all about the 1974 to 1979 uh, Labour government, and the whips, but focus on the whips, they're brilliant. And it's the Tory whips, uh, Humphrey Atkins and, and Jack Ben Weatherhill, Weatherhill, and they meet with Aerie Lee, <laughs> and they meet him in a closet, it's very funny to watch, and they go, Eric, Who's nominated? Who are you putting forward then? Come on, who's the right? Who's the right to ban him? And he goes, uh, and, and they all they assume it's the member for Northeast Leeds, which is to Keith Joseph. And and Erin Eve goes, Finchley. And Erin Eve, uh, Atkins goes, Finchley, oh, you sly fox, you're going to put a lamb to the slaughter then, are you? And Erin Eve went, Lamb to the slaughter. Have you spent any time with her? The Honourable Lady Finchley, of course, being Margaret Thatcher. Um, and then in the play, it shows Erin Humphrey Atkins going, she'll lose, but she'll irritate Heath enough for a force to, to be weakened. Now, who is it? And uh, and Erin um, even goes, North East Leeds, uh, uh, West Saturday, that's, of course, referring to Sir Geoffrey Howe uh, and others. Now, he, uh, Reggie Maudling, who was a huge wet in that government, 
and was, in many ways, a deep one-nation conservative, wrote a book where he talked about the distinction between the monetarists and the, quote, people who absorb the facts of life. And he said about Sir Keith Joseph that Keith wanted to rubbish all our record and all we had done. And whilst he may want to be fitted out for a hair shirt, I wouldn't, i.e. selling all our clothes to win an election. Uh, Michael Foote, of course, referenced a statement in the House of Commons debate where he said, uh, because they're talking about the difference between uh, Selsden Park conservatism, i.e. the Joseph Howe right-wing thought school and One Nation Toryism, and Joseph, of course, was a, a Selsden Park conservative, and uh, Keith jo- and Michael Footway, and of course, it was the Selsden Park policy to take Britain into Europe on the most disadvantageous terms possible. It was part of the Selsden Park policies to create a complete abandonment of it, the support for British industry. It was part of the Selsden Park policies to allow the naked laissez-faire economics of the Honourable Gentleman of the Northeast Leeds. Those are all part of the cells in park policies. And and that was the conservatism she espoused. Deeply right-wing, deeply limited government, deeply free market. Some of it, quite frankly, was necessary for the economy to survive. Some of it was boring, fucking horrendous shit. I mean, the necessary stuff was cut in the top rate of tax from 83 to 40p. The, the broad privatization of like telecoms and airlines but the mass unemployment was a disgrace to the human race. Um, yeah, so the Wilson government come in, with a majority of three, and decided to bring in the wage controls of six pounds a week increases. Rough justice, but necessary is how Wilson puts it. I mean, famously, there's a thing called the social contract. That was a deal between the Labour Party and the unions that were the unions abide by government pay policy the Labour Party would be pro-trade union the way it legislated. That was the uh, broad premise of social contracts. So wage controls would be very damaging for the, for the unions because, in effect, you would be uh, hampering its ability to make deals and negotiate. Uh, personally, I would never believe in wage controls. I believe in price controls. Yes, I believe in price controls, especially now with corporate businesses hiking up prices but what seems to be the fun of it price controls sound like a sound thesis but wage controls no you're playing with mar- the, the free playing of market forces as Bridget von Hayek would say uh, hence the joke there, what was it there was an old, an old boy in Nayek who slept with a girl in, on a kayak he wanted some tanning and I had to understand the laws of central planning and then ha- realized the free the freezes of Hayek. <laughs> I, I may, may I may have told that uh, limerick on the podcast before. Discovered it two weeks ago. Good limerick. Um. All right, let me say it again so people didn't hear me because I kind of chunted that one for my own for my own. See if I recall it right. It was there was an old as an old, a, a boy from Nyack who slept who slept with a girl on a kayak. He wanted some tanning, so I had to understand the laws of central planning and then made him understand the pieces of Hayek. Uh... <laughs> oh, dear. Um... 
Oh, I love the limerick. But the point is, is that if you look at the economy, if you look at the economy under Callahan, what you had was so you take sorry Wilson Wilson is your so six pound week wage controls, which would prevent the growth of the free market. Now, why do you not need wage controls? You don't need wage controls for this reason. Because in a market where supply dictates the demand, demand dictates the supply, you would not need wage controls because the employer would set the wage, not the state. Now, price is a different thing. Price is more interesting. Because in a time of corporate greed, it's right that we say to people, yes, of course you can have uh, you know, price controls on milk, price controls on bread. That's fair. I'm recording the podcast. Saying that, you know, price controls are key. But the point is, wage controls restrict union bargaining rights. That's why the unions were against wage controls. Now, what did the industry bill do? Let's look at the industry bill of 1975. So the industry bill was set up by Tony Benn, who came up with the idea of a national enterprise board. Now, the NEB was a notion that the state would be able to regulate all public enterprises and private enterprises. The state would have a stakehold in private enterprise. It'd be able to regulate it with investment inside. You would basically have a totally planned economy, top-down, command and control, borderline, dirigiste. Now, why did the industry bill die down? The industry bill died down because Tony Benn, after the 1975 EEC referendum, was put into energy. Howard Wilson famously saying to Tony Benn, I would like you to put all your energy into energy, referring to the point of all the North Sea oil inside the seas. But Ben, when he was at industry, had a plan that if you were going to do the fall, would have revolutionised British industry because you would have seen British Leylands, you would have seen the British Airways, you would have seen broad speaking, vast swathes of a nationalised economy that you don't see in a free society because a free society accepts you must have private industry, with private capital, for private profits. This is the key to the free society. But if you now look at it today with the water companies, you know, hiking bills up by 10,000 million and then paying out dividends of 15,000 million, is there an intellectual case? I can concede the intellectual case. But the notion of regulation of the industries that Tony Benn espoused for is most people would accept to be a broadly sensible principle. Now, ultimately, he died down. Sometimes the Labour Party back then was an extremely broad church with Tony Benn and Michael Ford on the left and Bill Rogers on the right. And I'm doing a one-man band episode. No one's here this week. You had Bill Rogers on the right. You had Tony Benn on the left. You had uh, people like, uh, well, who's in the middle of, I suppose, the... Middle of the party. Dennis Healy, I suppose, would be classified as, as middle of the road in the Labour Party. And they were a very broad church. So you have people on the left, like Peter Shaw, Tony Benko, who thought the industry bill was a superb idea that the state was to regulate enterprise, nationalise enterprise. And you had someone on the right of the party, the Bill Rogers, who thought this was fucking batshit, that the notion the state could interfere with the free playing and market forces in industry is a contrary to the free society. I happen personally to think that on industry, the state shouldn't interfere excessively. You should let industry flourish and then take the revenues from flourishing industry to then pay 
for social services, for social security, for the welfare state, poverty programs. Now, why did Harold Wilson resign? So 18th of March, 1976, Harold Wilson resigned as leader of the Labour Party. Harold Wilson resigned as leader of the Labour Party. Uh, resigned the party in 1976. Now he resigned because, well, let me put it this way. Two years before he, he when he won the, the fourth term, third term in, on the 24th of March 1974, he told Bernard Donoghue, who was going to be his uh, head of number 10 policy unit, take two years off from the LSC where he was lecturing at the time because I'm going to resign in, on the, in April 1976, his 60th birthday. And Tony Benn actually figured out the Prime Minister was going because in 1975, I think it was March 75, uh, Wilson had decided to change, decided to do something interesting, which is because the, uh, Alec Douglas Hume, when he was the Prime Minister, allowed Prime Ministers and leaders of the opposition to have their own cars. So Wilson, by 1976, had his own car, i.e. his own driver, for 13 years. He drove him around. Wilson said, ex-Prime Minister should be allowed to have their own driver and their own car. That's how Tony Benn clocked that Howard Wilson was probably going to be resigning as the Prime Minister. Uh, Wilson resigns as a shocker. I'm going to check. I think it was the 18th of March, 1976. Oh, I can stand corrected. Sixteenth of March. Well, fair enough. That's not you know excessively out. Sixteenth of March, he resigns. Now, who's in the running for leadership? The leader of the Labour Party. Well, the, there are the obvious people, aren't there? James Callaghan, the Foreign Secretary. Roy Jenkins, the Home Secretary. Uh, the two, Michael Foot, the virtual de practically the Deputy Prime Minister in more words than one. Leader of the House of Commons. Uh, Tony Benn, the Energy Secretary. Dennis Healy, Chancellor of the Exchequer, Tony Crossland, the genius of the centre-left. Now, Crossland stood down because he didn't have enough of a base. Uh, Healy stood down because though Healy should be naturally the front-runner of the leadership contest, there was an incident in early March 76 where it was about 11 o'clock in the evening and it was, it was actually the day of the no-confidence no motion. It was the 13th or 12th of March 76. List of no confidence votes. I'm currently looking for the day Mr. Wilson had his confidence vote. It's just showing only all the defeats. I'm not just doing the defeats. I want to know the the, 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 the the list of the votes. When was Wilson 76? Wilson 76. 11th of March. Okay. 11th of March, 76. This was a no confidence vote. The Wilson won by 17. Uh, they defeated it by 17. I to the right 280, nose to the left 297. Now, why did Heath lose? Well, they lost. Why did Healy lose? Because 
was defending the government, the left of the Labour Party started insulting Dennis Healy. And it was a proper back and forth. They were calling, what was it? Oh, you fucking <laughs> Stalinist bastard. I mean, that was a you Stalinist bastard. And they were flicking V signs at Healy. They were abusing him, Stalinist bastard V signs. And Healy turns around and screams, You fuckers, you're out your tiny little fucking Chinese minds. And. <laughs> Oh my god. Um so yeah, the next day everyone thought, Holy mother of God, what's Dennis Healy just done? And uh, he was he was listening to you about this, and Dennis Healy goes, Well, there's always been a dramatic love life in the Labour Party. <laughs> a rougher love life. There's always been a rough love life in the Labour Party, hasn't there been? And uh, he later said that this man was praising my virility, my my virgin, my virility. So I was praising his virility, and it got out this exchange of compliments. <laughs> I mean, famously, he Mike Yarwood was a famous person at the time. Uh, in humanized Dennis Healy by calling by using the phrase silly Billy, and in, in when Mike Yarwood would impersonate Dennis Healy as Chancellor, he'd say, "Oh, what a silly Billy!" and all these sorts of things. And uh, he Healy was never into that. Healy uh, used to have a different words like uh, <laughs> for S and B, like uh, a, a stupid bastard and you know, silly bitch and all these absurd, really unkind things. Uh, sodding bastard, that was another one of Dennis Healy's abusive thrones. Uh, he threw at people. Um, famously, the infamous incident of him prowling up and down the commons near the voting lobby, sticking his middle fingers in the air and screaming at Labour MPs to go and vote with the government. Uh, he was such a bruiser. Now, Intima Healy was when Dennis ran in 1980 for the Labour Party. He nearly won. He lost by only 10 votes. Only lost by 10 votes. And many people, and I personally am of this strand of thinking, had he fought just a bit harder, would have won the leadership and the Labour Party couldn't have lost in 83 because we'd have been sticking it to the Tories on employment. We'd been sticking it to the Tories on the NHS. We'd been sticking it to them on Margaret Thatcher's inhumanity. And we'd have taken a one clear line on Falkland, one clear line on, on sovereignty. We would not have the longest suicide note in history of, our of a manifesto. And the reasons that we lost in 83 wouldn't have happened. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big Dennis Healy fan, personally. Um, so yeah, uh, who was next? Tony Benn, he came second, he got 37 votes. And famously, uh, Tony Benn asked his, asked his PPS, Joe Ashton, uh, why will not they vote for me? No, no, that's not that's not uh, surely must understand why can't they vote for me? Can't you see that the ideas I'm proposing say good? And it's Tony. You're not going to win so long as the Labour Party is elected by the MPs. And Ben goes, oh, simple. We'll just change the rules then, won't we? 
What are you trying to say here? Don't you understand the trying the argument making the definition of socialism? And the premise of socialism is key to the new economy that we all seek and desire as socialists. Um, see, so we just change the rules then, won't we? And then, of course, four years later, you know, the whole electoral, co the electoral college and mandatory release elections and all that shit show. Um, Roy Jenkins lost, and a year later, fucked off to Europe as the European commissioner. Uh, Michael Foote came the closest, and Foote, of course, was a very capable uh, leader at that time. He was arguably, him and Michael Cox and Walter Harrison, uh, what was it? Wasn't it dormant harassment cock up? Oh, Jack Dorman, that was it. Those are the four, the fix it four. Wasn't it dormant harassment cock up? That's Michael Foot, Jack Dorman, Walter Harrison, Michael Cox. Uh, they ran an outstanding management operation of the dying days of the last of that Labour government. They basically were responsible, you know, from March 76 to March 79, we had no majority, not a seat of an overall majority. We had, you know, the Liberals, then we had Ulster parties. So it was Liberals, then the SNP, then it was Ulster, and then we were all just managing on for our own sanity. And, um, yeah. So, yeah, but Callaghan became Prime Minister because Jim Callaghan... By the time he became Prime Minister, had all four great offices of state to his name. He was Chancellor from 64 to 67, Home Secretary from 64 to 70, sorry, 67 to 70, Foreign Secretary from 64 to 76, and then um, Prime Minister, 76 79. I'll give you two good James Callaghan anecdotes. So the first one's when he became the Chancellor, and his PPS, uh, Ian Bancroft, came up to him and said, my name is Ian Bancroft, the permanent secretary will be delighted to meet you. And he did the most utmost politeness. And Callahan said he came in and he was greeted the paper about that thick. So about two or three centimeters thick. And he said, he threw it like a bucket of cold water was thrown in his head. He showed the real trade big balance of trade figures, the real current deficit figures, the real spending forecasts. And it was shit. Um, the second anecdote, actually, there's three, so I'll give you one more. The second one is uh, when he was foreign secretary, there was a guy named Dennis Hills, who was a British professor in Uganda, and done a very un uh, disapproving thing to Idi Amin. Uh, uh, not very pleasant fellow, Idi Amin, I think, lightly. And Idi Amin says famously, uh, if Foreign Secretary is not here in 10 days from now, we will then decide whether or not to execute Hills. That, oh, come on. I, I watched that broadcast. Uh, 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 anyways, um, I'm in the impression mood. I'm just going to impersonate everybody I can think of. So, yeah. So what happens? Uh, Jim Callahan flies over to Uganda to meet Idi Amin. And Iti Amin, six foot five, greets Callahan. He's about six foot three. You know, they're not. They are the same height, roughly. And Amin, you know, as as Jim Callahan goes, Amin's a big chap, and uh, he gives you these huge bare hearts like that. Big, 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 big cuddle. Big cuddle. And uh, <laughs> now you might think, about what was the reason Iti Amin had letting this Dennis Hills go? <laughs> It's a 
it's um okay cue impersonation when i heard you came from wales uh cardiff i decided i was going to let hills go because when you have the olympic swimming pool in cardiff and when i trained for the olympics i would go and train at swimming pool every day and jim callan famously says what's well, good reason amongst any to let dennis hills go um so uh, Armin insisted that he drove Jim Callahan to the airport, and they did, and they just basically ignored all the traffic. And Callahan was taken to an old village, not as bad as you think, and met Idiani's mother and his family. And they all sat in this little hut on the stool, and they were talking. And his civil service were scared shitless, thinking, "Where the fuck has the foreign secretary of the United Kingdom gone?" Um. But yeah, and then Armin, about an hour and a half later, drove Jim Callahan back to the airport, again, ignoring all the traffic, and bid farewell. So that's an interesting anecdote. And third anecdote is when Jim Callahan became the Foreign Secretary in 1984, apparently, because he was very pro-Eurosceptic, infamously, infamously 1971 saying, if we have to accept that the common language is French, and we shall not have a currency, then I say it, and I say it even in French to avoid any misunderstanding. No, merci beaucoup in regards to the notion of federal Europe. And um, Callahan, apparently, this is not said to be true because the civil servants do deny this, but there are reports. So when he became the foreign secretary and he, was, he got the foreign office civil service, the inner circle, to sit around and read the section on Britain and Europe in the Labour Party manifesto. And Callahan apparently said, I would like to know if this is our European policy. <laughs> um, very outlandish, very outlandish. But Callahan became the Prime Minister, Sonny Jim, and not like everyone was kept in there, really. You know, Dennis Healy was still the Chancellor. Tony Crossman became Foreign Secretary. Uh, Tony Benn was still the Energy Secretary. Michael Foot, Leader of the House and Deputy Prime Minister. Very few changes made. Except the firing of Barbara Castle. Barbara Castle was, of course, one of the greatest um, spokespeople for socialism. And Callahan always despised her. And he, she despised Callahan. And uh, <laughs> Callahan goes, uh, Barbara, I think you leave to understand that the younger faces in the Labour Party, in the cabinet. And Barbara goes, well, in that case, why aren't you leaving then? Because you're 60. Which is an interesting question. Um, yeah, Callahan formed the government and limps on, limps on, limps on, limps on. Uh, and then comes the IMF crisis. Then the government in the United States were cutting spending like possessed people. So, February 76, four and a half billions of cuts. July 76, two billions of cuts. Was it? Was it two billions of cuts? Was it 8,000 million of cuts? Yes, it was another 2,000 million of cuts in December 76. And actually, the December cuts have provoked a shit ton of anger um, in the cabinet where you had. The the Howard Lee, you had basically this is the cabinet to be on the IMF loan. But the basically what happened the pound crashed by 14% in one day in July 76. 
Heath was going to, sorry, Heath, he leaves me to go to Manila on a conference and he had to turn back from Heathrow and go straight back to the Treasury. And then they had to fly to America to get a, a Quest Guyman for a two and a half thousand, two thousand million, a two thousand million pound loan, which they agreed to. The maximum you could draw is two thousand million. And Healy went to the Labour Party conference and basically shouted at them for seven and a half minutes <laughs> because there was talks that this, this is the Labour Party conference that you know dictate policy. There was talk that the Labour Party conference was going to turn down the government's motion on the IMF. So Healy goes and goes, I'm going to the IMF to, to go and t- get our economy into a good place. And that means accepting policies that we like as well as policies that we don't like. It means sticking to the very painful cuts in public expenditure that we outline today and we outline tomorrow. That is what I believe. That is what I'm asking for. And that is why I hope conference will support me in our task. And Healy had only seven and a half minutes to speak. Dennis Healy was not a member of the National Executive Committee. He seemed to be addicted to being put on and getting kicked off the NEC. All cabinet ministers got on the NEC. The Chancellor wasn't because Jen Healy had a habit of insulting people too heavily. So he was only given seven and a half minutes to speak. But it was a good speech. We spent most time just shouting at the Labour Party conference. You know, I'm going to the IMF and I'm going to go and get and get maximum loans, rebuild our economy, which means you're sticking to the very painful cuts in public expenditure and all these things. Um, so then, oh, God, you'll come on to that. So the cabinet meet in December 76. Okay, it's loans agreed to, and it's going to be basically cuts, two billions of new cuts, huge cuts. And, you know, they look at a billion in pure cuts. Half a billion from the sale of the BP shares, and I think about four hundred million from refinancing export credits. Uh, there's a brilliant documentary on this. It's called the nineties. Called uh, I can't remember what's it called. Let's get the title up. Let's get the title up because this back in seventy six, Granada Television is an amazing, amazing thing where they basically got the journalists to recreate what the cabinet ministers were saying in the IMF crisis. And it was absolutely fantastic to watch. Uh, no, that's Bill Clinton's State of the Union. I've, I've just, I was listening to that. Uh, I can't find it. <laughs> Andy Coulson, yes. He's on trial for perjury, yes. The perjury, yes. Which is pretty shocking. Are you shocked? <laughs> I'm shocked. Are you? I'm glad you're shocked. Uh, IMF loans, cabinet ministers. It's called the Cabinet in Conflict Loans from the IMF. It's by the King's Inst- Policy Institute, King's College London. It's a really good one-hour documentary where they get journalists to recreate being the cabinet ministers and explain what all the ministers from Dennis Healy to James Callahan to Tony Crossland to Tony Benn to Peter Shaw to Roy Hattersley to Howard Lever. It was a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant piece. Anyways, the cabinet really, actually, until the last day, don't accept the reforms. Really, it was Reg Prentice, Shirley Williams, Howard Lever, they accepted the reforms, and that was it. And you had the hard left, which was the, the Tony Benz, the Peter Shaws, the lead in the re-industrial, the, the new industrial strategy, which is basically Benz industry bill, nationalisation, planned economy, dirigies, command and control. You had the soft left, the Roy Hattersley left, who kissed that some people in the Labour Party would now call Hard left, 
what well, Roy Hasley back then was what called social democratic. He's social democratic in the traditional sense of being a social demo- democratic individual. And um, he was against it because he said, what is the point of doing cuts in public expenditure? That's the job of the Conservative Party, of which I agree. Uh, Crossland, who thought there was absolutely no economic case for it, and the Treasury figures were fucking thick, which we later know the Treasury figures were fibs, because the Treasury admitted later when Jeffrey Howard and Howard, they, they underestimated public revenues by £12 billion pounds and estimated overestimated public expenditure by 17,000 million. They literally told bullshit figures, so we had to cut public spending unnecessarily. You. Um, yeah, I'm a bit cross about that. <laughs> bit cross, bit cross. So yeah, that's obvious. The IMF talks were pretty horrendous, but the, the government votes for them, yes, government votes for them. And then comes March 77. So Margaret Thatcher puts down another vote of confidence in the in the government. And they're going to lose it. Labour were going to lose it. Until David Steele comes in the picture. Good Lord. David Steele comes in the picture. David Steele was the now leader of the Liberal Democrats. Jeremy Thorpe had to resign uh, as leader of the Liberal Democrats. Sorry, the, the Liberals, the Liberals, not the Liberal Democrats, that's 1988, but the, the Liberals. And Thorpe resigned over the murder trial, and then Steele comes in. Steele is naturally more pro-Labour than Thorpe. I mean, in many ways, David Steele aligned with much more uh, Gordon Brown thinking, Gordon Brown thinking, and then Ball's thinking, then you say with a John Pardo, then you would say with a Nick Clegg, time of Liberal Democrats, he's in modern terms. I'd say, for example, Tim Farron, who I think, except for his socialist views, is a very, very, very good politician in every sense, a good communicator, a good thinker, a good strategist. Um... He's much more aligned to the David Steele thinking than Nick Clegg is. Nick Clegg is more of a Jeremy Thorpe type of Liberal Democrat. But Steele basically wanted to keep Labour in power. So what happened? He did a deal where the Liberals' 13 MPs would support Labour's 310 MPs. Uh, in return, there would be PR for Europe, the European elections held the year. There'd be PR for that. Broad local government support, cuts, uh, support in devolution, and cuts in public expenditure and more revenue. That eighteen months of lo- of Liblab Pact, you saw falling inflation, falling mortgage interest rates, higher employment, lower unemployment, four percent growth. Not bad, very good actually, very good. And and I'm now speaking personally, and speaking personally, whilst I would always support a Labour majority government and believe in the role of a, of a solid Labour majority government as I believe the Labour Party on its worst day is still a thousand times better than the Tory party on its best day I've always said if the choice is a hung parliament where we have to do a deal with the Liberal Democrats do the deal because the Liberal Democrats at least when they're thinking so let's say the Vince Cable wing of the Lib Dems are much more aligned to our thinking than the Tories or the left of the Labour Party. 
always keep labor in power. Whatever the cost, whatever the means, keep labor in power. So that was the attitude of, of the foot of the foot year of the foot leadership of the whips office. It was keep labor in power. I mean, famously, why? Because 1980, the oil money was going to kick in. And let's be clear, it is the great one of the great what ifs. What if we had gone to the country in 1978, won a 35-seat overall majority, and had the oil money? 100 billion pounds worth of North Sea oil. It's like, you know, what if Atlee won in 51, and when the trade barriers came in 1952, you've seen National Care Service, the Education Service. Anyways... So it was good. But then, of course, you had the summer of 78, where the Labour Party, after being 17 points down the previous year because of Grunwick, Grunwick was this paper making, was this uh, paper mail order business owned by George Ward, a complete dick of an owner. And I say that because he had workers who weren't allowed to go to the toilets, who weren't allowed to go for lunch break, who were told to go and, you know, Never got to outkeep paper Bernardo, you know, all that sort of thing. A very, very rude, rude fucker. And uh, of course, he was supported by George, uh, by John Gurrier and the McWhirters. Uh, John, for those of you not familiar on your right wing intricacies, John Gurrier was the head of the National, was it? National Freedom Institute? The Freedom Association, that was it. The Freedom Association. Basically, a bunch of right-wing zealots who think 1930s better than, 19, than civilized society. Um, that's harsh. Uh, though he was a great influence on Margaret Thatcher, may I add. He was a friend of Margaret Thatcher. And Gourier had brought lawyers and money to keep George Ward in business. And famously, because this, the, the, the post office union were part of the solidarity strike with, with the Grimwick workers, they had Post bags, nearly like nearly a hundred thousand pieces of post bag into it. Uh, and what did they do? They got all the Freedom Association members to come down, put their bags in 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 the, in their convoys with their with as John Gouvier would say, they and their co-pilots <laughs> went to post offices across the land and went to go and put them in. Twenty four hours later, the blockade was removed. Pretty smart, not an eye. Pretty smart. Um. But Grunwick changed everything because you saw genuinely it, it was very militant and peaceful in many ways. Uh, but having said that, George Ward, the owner of Grunwick, was a complete dick in every sense of the word. He treated his workers with contempt, and I treat him with that contempt for him treating workers with contempt. Uh, but yeah, so the summer of '78, the economy was recovering, unemployment was coming down, growth was at four percent, inflation was reaching single figures, not seen since the early '70s. And there was talk of going to the country for a general election. Remember, if Callahan had gone in October 78, he would have been well within his rights. Okay? Harold Wilson, what, is, what do the following people have in common? What does Anthony Eden, Harold Macmillan, Harold Wilson, Edward Heath, all, and Stanley Baldwin all have in common? They are leaders who, from 1931 onwards, have gone to the country after four years of being in power. Callaghan should have gone to the country, called an election in August 78, gone to the country for mid-September, won that election in mid-September, which he was going to do. 
he was going to, he was on course to win the general election. With the, remember, if Callahan had got a 1% swing, just 1% from one every 100 people that voted Tory in 74, if one of them voted Labour next in 79, Jim Callahan would have won a majority of 30 seats. A tenfold increase in the majority. And with polls saying 47-42, that means Tories up 7, Labour up 8. Wait, is that 47-42, Labour up Oh, Jesus. That's only half of 1% swing. So that means like 15 seats. 42 and a half? 47 and a half? Oh. Oh, shit. Wow, okay. Seeing it's 40, 44, 40. So, ooh, 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 ooh. That's interesting. I'm just memorizing the, the Gallup polls. Okay. Well, you probably win a majority about 15, 20, 30, maybe 30 seats, which is still better than the three seats. And I said, if he won a hung parliament, okay, he would have done a deal with the Liberals and it would have revolutionized British politics. But the point is, Margaret Thatcher would not become prime minister, and that's full stop. Uh, but he didn't go to the country. He generally thought about it. He teased about it in, in an interview with Thames Television and Lou Gardner. Great Lou Gardner. They got Lou. Uh, that's L-L-E-W. Uh, Gardner, of course. Gardner is Gardner. G-A-R-D-N-E-R. And he does speak to the TUC where he says, what was it? There was I waiting at the church. <laughs> Can't remember how it went on. All at once. He sent me round a note. Here's the very note. This is what it wrote. Can't get away to man with you today. My wife won't let me. <laughs> so that was, he, he said that to you see, that's verbatim, verbatim. And that was his way of saying, we're not going to go to the country in general election. It is still a mistake. I genuinely think the record, because remember, what came after 78, winter of discontent, the winter of discontent would not have happened if Labour were back in power. Because if Labour had a majority, let's say, let's say it was a 1% swing from Tories to Labour, so a 30 seat majority, okay? So that would have been Labour 330. About, yeah, about, okay, about, yeah, 30 over Tories. Yeah, so about yeah, about three thirty-five Tories and three hundred thirty-five majority. Okay, what would have happened? Would the unions have complied? Yes, because of a new social contract. It would have been Michael Foot basically saying, "We're going to have the oil money coming in next year. Can you please calm the fuck down?" Um. Yeah, there we are. I'm passionate. So yeah, when this contempt would not have happened had they gone to the country in seventy-eight. So they didn't go to the country in 78. The Liberals left the pact, and Jim Callaghan basically counted on the SNP nationalists who had 11 seats in the House of Commons uh, for their sport. They promised devolution. <laughs> promised de they promised devolution. Now, why did devolution fail? Devolution failed. Actually, let's do winter discontent. So winter discontent. Winter discontent started because Ford Motorworks had rejected the government's pay policy. Pay policy was wage controls, which said pay should not rise with 5%. 5%. 
Uh, Ford said fuck off, and they lost the vote on enforcing. The House of Commons had a vote in trying to tell Ford, you will do your fucking 5%. Uh, we lost that vote. And Ford won to the fuck off. Uh, the Civil Service wanted 26. New P wanted 37. New P, of course, is the National Union of Public Employees. Basically, the entire fucking public sector. So from nurses to teachers to firemen to police officers. You fuck around with them. You're fucked, mate. Um... So yeah, New P and all them lot, they were on strike, and hence the whole the the the, the grave diggers on strike, the water workers on strike, the electricity men on strike, the teachers on strike, the nurses on strike, everyone on fucking strike. And that's the danger of inflation. If inflation runs too high, prices run too high, and if wages don't keep <laughs> and if wages don't keep with the inflation, you're in trouble. So what happens? So the government gets the unions back on board in oh shit. The government get the unions back on board, uh, and they win the vote in the House of Commons, but it collapses. So what happens? Devolution comes. Now devolution was fought on the notion that the Labour Party wanted a Scottish Assembly. And this would have had full power. So tax-raising powers. It would basically be a replica of what we have today in, in Hollywood. Now, why did it fail? It failed because... It failed because... Forgive me for yawning, but I have been talking to this machine now for 1 hour 23 minutes. Uh, it failed because the Labour Party and pro-unionist MPs put a motion down saying uh, no referendum is a legitimate referendum without 40% of the total Scottish electorate, so total Scottish electorate voting yes. And it was 32.75% of the total. Even though the Nats won the referendum, it was 51.18% to 48%. Because only 32.75% of the total electorate voted yes, the referendum was declared invalidated, the deal was off, and the SNP did a motion trying to bring down the, the Labour government. So what happens? The SNP, the La Liberals, the Tories, the Unionists, all say we're going to vote down the government. Cue the final question. Why was it so close? Well, let's, let's go through what happened. So, the Tory party, the Liberals, the Unionists, all uh, nationalists, all vote against it. Uh, two days before, uh, e uh, yes, two two days before, sir? two days before, John Carson, the MP for Mr. John Carson and Mr. Harold McCusker were the two uh, Ulster Unionists that voted for the, the government confidence. Uh, John Carson voted with them. Now, he said, this was because Roy Hattersley promised uh, a restriction, a review of prices of the foodstuffs in Northern Ireland and increased Northern Irish MPs. And <laughs> Carson said that what they wanted was a pipeline. And that Enoch Powell who was now an MP for the Ulster Unionists, 
having left the Tory party in 1974 because of the snap election, which he declared a fraud and fucked off to Northern Ireland. And interestingly, he did not do more in the Central Court of Zemper to keep us in power than he did for the Tories. <laughs> and famously, he watched broadcast on Times Television, and it's uh, Bob Mellish, Dennis Skinner, uh, what's the old chap's name? Uh, Nicholas St. John Stevens, uh, Margot MacDonald for the SNP, John Pardo for the Liberals, St. John Stevens for the Tories, and Enoch for the Most Genius. And uh, and Lou Gardner, the moderator, goes, Mr. Powell, how are you are you trying to irritate the Conservatives? And St. John Stevens, Nicholas St. Nick, Saint, what is it? Nicholas St. John Stevens, is that his name? Or might I just made that up? Is it Norman? Yeah, Norman St. John Stevens. That's it, not Nicholas. That's it, Norman St. John, Norman St. John Stevens. So yeah, Norman St. John Stevens. <laughs> so Louis Gardner goes, are you trying to wind up, Mr. Powell? And, goes, and Norman St. John goes, you do try, you know, you do try to wind us up. And Powell goes, no, 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 I try endlessly to praise Mrs. Thatcher, but I find it very difficult to do so. Uh, but so, yeah, they wanted the pipeline to go somewhere north of to Northern Ireland. And Enoch Powell would have led the delegation to abstain on the motion, keeping Labour in power. I frankly think he was looking for any reason to keep us in power, which is all right. Uh, so, Roy Hattersley meets with his great friend David Hill, and Hattersley says he believes in the pipeline. Let's do, let's do the pipeline. And he meets actually with Enoch Powell. And he goes, um, to Powell, you know, Powell, Roy Hattersley, I think we ought to talk. And Powell goes, you want the pipeline? And he goes, yes. And he believed in it. And David Hill later said he, he believed in the pipeline because he believed in the Morrison concept, Morrisonian concept of nationalisation, uh, the notion of, of, of public ownership through the ports. Which is very clever, I was telling you, it's very clever. And Callahan was getting sick. Callahan said, you know, what's the congruence in the pipeline? You know, this country's not for sale, all this sort of thing. But he could have done that. I want to kept Labour in power. And with the recovering economy, could have won. Um, that's not, so pipeline number one. Number two was... Yeah, I was going to say Jerry Fitz. Okay, okay, I'll give you, I'll give you the Jerry Fitz. I know. Jerry Fitz, MP for the SDLP, that's the Social Democrat Labour Party, it's our sister party in Northern Ireland. He sustained us, sustained us, sustained us. Two days before the... Uh, he hated Roy Mason. He, he didn't like him as an onset secretary of Northern Ireland because he was too, too pro-unionist, as he thought. Uh, so, he goes number 10 and meets with Jim Callahan. And Jim Callahan said to me, very close, Jerry, 311, 310, got it right? You got it right. And he nodded. And Jim and JP goes, Look, Jim, I, I can't support you guys so long as Roy Mason is just such a state from Northern Ireland. And he nodded to a man who brought in a bottle of gin and a bottle of tanny. And he didn't like that one bit. Uh, Frank Maguire, next one. He was the Irish Republican MP for Fermanagh and South Tyrone, had one of the shittest voting records to the point where Jerry Fitz basically said on the day of the vote, which was, uh, there is an honourable rumour going around the house, and if it is, it's despicable. The honourable member for Fermanagh and South Tyrone is somewhere within this building. 
and everyone bursted out laughing. Uh, but, but Maguire was known to vote Labour. He was vote. He did vote often on the, when he did come. He did vote with the government. He did vote with the government. And uh, John Scarlett. John Scarlett. I think that's his name. John Scarlett. Is that his name? He was Bernard Weather Weatherhill's local MP. John Scarlett MP. Yeah, it was okay. It was John Scarlett. No, it wasn't. No, that's the intelligence fellow. Oh, Christ. Oh, my dear. Frank McGuire, chap. Frank McGuire. Right, I'm going to ask the chat GPT. Bear with, bear with me, dear listeners of the, of the good podcast. Just bear with me in two seconds. What was his name? It was John something. Who was the Labour whip in the 1979 no confidence vote that went drinking in pubs with Frank Maguire in London to persuade him to vote late for the government? John Stallard. I didn't actually have to put that in, but I know it's John Stallard MP. It is! There is an MP called John Stallard. Oh, is he called Jock? It's that John Jock Stallard. Oh my God. Right. Jock Stallard was a very good Labour whip in the uh, in the seventies. You see MPs, he called Jock, oh Jock, my dad's at death door, all these things, and um, and Jock Stallard would always go, "Son, do your duty and go and vote." He's, he's a good lad, Jock Stallard. Anyway, that was John Stallard, Jock Stallard. Right, okay. Uh, he would make one of us a pub crawl with fucking uh, Frank McGuire, basically. Drinking and senseless, trying to get into vote, and Maguire was going to until he heard speech from until his wife had a speech from Jerry Fitz, where basically he did a full reign to take the piss out of Frank Maguire, and they went home, and they went home. Very regrettable. And then the third factor was uh, Doc Broughton. Now Doc Broughton was the MP for Batley and Morley, now known as Batley and Spen, whose MP Kim Ledbetter is an absolute. Gem. Uh, so full hat, full credit to her. She's a fantastic MP, great person, great person. Uh, but Doc Broughton was the MP for Batley and Morley, and Doc was deeply ill. His name was Alfred Broughton, MP. Doc Broughton was deeply ill, and but he was dying. Man, he died because April second, and the vote was held twenty eighth of March seventy nine. He died April second seventy nine. But it was possible to get him down. And Jim Callahan said, don't do it. Do not let him come down. He's a dying man, for fuck's sake. And I think... 
And you know, later in the eighth course, well, all right, try. And he couldn't because it was fucking badly. It was four hours away from them. They couldn't even helicopter him down. Poor, poor man. But he wants to. He was a Labour man. He was an old Labour man who had done anything for the party. So no Dr. Broughton, no Jerry Fit, no Frank Maguire, no Ulster Unionists. Then comes an even bigger side. Actually, should do the Clement Ford one? Okay, Clement Ford was a Lib Dem MP, Liberal MP, who was in the train in Leeds, and Jim Callahan said, if you miss your train, we'll do a freedom of information request. Uh, give us to do freedom of information, liberalised freedom of information laws. He got his train. But the big one is uh, Walter Harrison and uh, Bernard Weatherhill, both of whom were whips. Bernard Weatherhill was Tory whip, Jack Walter Harrison was Labour Deputy Chief whip. And they almost had a gentleman's agreement called pairing. Pairing was the notion, it's still to this day now, it's now called the slip. But pairing was the idea that you paired sick with sick. That a, 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 if a Tory MP was sick, a Labour MP would miss the vote. If a Labour MP was sick, a Tory MP missed the vote. Now, this was scrapped for four years in 1975 after we. Well, all right, all right, we cheated. We cheated, okay? It was a vote on shipbuilding nationalisation, and we may have inadvertently counted a Labour MP twice. <laughs> oh dear. Um, infamous confrontation led to Michael Heseltine swinging the mace around his head and beating it with people, apparently. But I, I, apparently, Michael Heseltine said he was just offering the mace. But Apparently, he was just shit, you know, bloody ape shit with the mental with the mace. And famously, the speaker said, The speaker, someone, I mean, the speaker said, uh, to Heseltine, You can do anything, you can do anything, but you can't, can't touch the mace because the mace is the symbol of government authority. And if you take it out of its rightful place, you have taken away the power of the government. So it's very key. Uh, the, so the mace, the mace was all right. Uh, so what happened? Pairing them ditched. The channels were ditched. Uh, not really ditched, because you still had them talking, but it wasn't as big as it should have been. It could have been. Anyways. <laughs> Bernard goes to uh, Walter Harrison and goes, well, Walter, it seems you've had it. And it was not at all. He said, well, you, you've lost Frank Maguire. You're not going to have Dr. Broughton. Not going at this bloody rate, surely. And he goes, I am formally asking you this is uh, Harrison to uh, Weatherhall. He goes, I am formally asking you to honour your word. And, and he goes, what do you want about? He goes, look, we always had this agreement to pair sick with sick. And I am asking you now to honour your word. And he said, look, Walter, I haven't gotten paired. I don't have emotion, I have no confidence. And Walter Harrison said, yeah, well, nevertheless, I'm asking you to honour your word. And Bernard Weatherhill did something that was so amazing, beyond description. He said, well, Walter, I always agree we've had this gentleman's agreement. Um, but I haven't got a pair. But I will honour my word. And I will stand out tonight. I won't vote. I will stand out tonight and I will not vote. And uh, Walter Harrison said, well, obviously, obviously I can't ask him to do that. No, 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 no. Now, you see, if he had, Weatherhill would have done it. 
but is that right? Is it right to ask someone who later became the Speaker of the House to commit basically political suicide? I don't think that is. No. That, that shows why Jack Weatherhill is one of the most honourable people in politics. That's very honourable. Um, now, even half an hour before the vote, the, when the division clear the lobby, so they have the debates in the House, and Willie Whitelaw is fucking brilliant. He was the Tory deputy leader. If you listen to the Margaret Thatcher episode, you'll know Willie's a natural wet, natural moderate, but a fantastic debater. And he goes, uh, to about Jim Callahan. He said, the wax elephant is in support, not sabotage. But the Prime Minister knows all about sabotage. He was the man who sabotaged his own colleagues, including the right of honourable lady with Blackburn, when she tried to reform the unions in place of strikes. He was the man who sabotaged the miners ever there. With his, it was, he was the man who sabotaged his own colleagues in their handling of the economy. He was the man who sabotaged the Ireland honourable for Betsy and Sidcap when he tried to deal with the trade union problem and including the labour Blackburn. That was, of course, Barbara Castle. And they would say, with his disgraceful, with his disgraceful incitement of the miners at Aberdeer. <clears throat> and then um, Michael Foote did the wind up speech for the government and he was fucking brilliant because he said um, what we've seen and I've seen it marked it really today what we are seeing is the uh, honourable lady leading her troops into battle slowly concealed behind a Scottish nationalist shield with the boy David holding her hand <laughs> That is Margaret Thatcher leading her Tory MPs into battle with a Scottish Nationalist shield with David Steele holding her hand. Yeah. Stick it to them. Stick it to them. And he went on to say, what was it? Because um, he went on to say, well, I'd like it to smile for us, Mr. Speaker. I'd like it to smile. I say to the Reverend Lady, I'm even more concerned about your faith, the right honourable gentleman than I am about her. Uh, she can look after herself. Mm. Uh, but I fear what is the leader of the Liberal Party. And I say this in the utmost affection. Uh, he's passed from rising hope to elder statesman without any intervening period whatsoever. I mean, that is fantastic of an attack line. I mean, famously, what was the line about Tory and Peace? What are they all shouting, Mr. Speaker? Hail Caesar, those about to die salute me. <laughs> and, um... How did he close the wind-up speech? Where did he go? So what is the choice? What is the choice facing the country? It's a choice that's very similar to 1945. Or dare I say even 1940 when a Labour Party had to come and rescue the country then. Yeah. Anyway, he said, it, what he put went on to say, it's on the notion of the Labour Party in this House of Commons that we threw out the Chamberlain government in 1939. It was thanks to the Labour Party that Churchill ever had a chance to serve the country in the war years, thanks to the Labour Party. Two-thirds of honourable members voted for the same reactionary policies that they do, some of them will vote for tonight. And it is in the most difficult, it is in the most difficult and parts of this country's history, and this country of ours has turned to the Labour Party for salvation. And they've never turned so far. Uh, we say to the Conservative Party, we saved the country in 1940. We saved the country again in 1945. We set out to rescue the country 
of what was left of it in 1964 and here in 1974 we have done it again and um and then he went on to talk to me like boy bat shit and he said Mr. Speaker, I think it's high time the Conservative Party regained a sense of humour, even if they lost everything else. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's called... I think the YouTube video is called Michael Foote Delivering a Brilliant Speech, because it is a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant speech to listen to. Uh, Michael Foote. Is it actually called Michael Foote? Michael Foote delivering a brilliant speech. It is so worth a listen. Uh, Michael Foote was a pretty hopefully good Labour Party, but I always have the Shirley Williams analysis on Michael Foote, which is that Michael Foote is one of the, the sweetest of men, a lovely man personally, an excellent writer, an excellent journalist, and a really good manager of the last Labour government, and just about the last person you want to have leading the Labour Party. Which I think is fair. Um... But a fantastic, fantastic debater. Fantastic debater. Uh, so, yeah, the, the Labour Party lost 3-11, 3-10. 3-10 to 3-11. was it? But in half an hour before the vote, uh, the, one of the Scottish Labour whips had come with his thumbs raised like that. You know, saying, yeah, we won, we won. And Margaret Thatcher's lips said, I don't believe it. I don't. And Ron Hatley said, the sense of joy he heard from Margaret Thatcher's disbelief of, I don't believe it, the thought we just won again. But we lost, eyes to the right, 311, nose to the left, 310, the eyes have it, the eyes have it. And then came the general election on May the 3rd, 1979, which we lost. Uh, we went 269 seats, down 50, Tories 339, up 62. And the Liberals on 14. SNP, fuck them, down to two seats. Goodbye, good riddance, off. Um, but yeah, that's your summary of 1970-1979 British politics. I have been speaking to the machine now for one and three quarter hours. Uh, interesting, interesting. Let's hope this week actually had to be a popularity in like last week, which is a good episode, but not people liked it, which is a bit sad. Uh, let's hope this week works. And I will speak to you all then next Sunday, hopefully with Mr. James, Mr. James Roxburgh with us. Uh, until then, goodbye, God bless, and have a good day. Whoa, 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 no, no. Stop recording.